0: Well, we are in the story. Yeah? And the story is a good one. If I could give a rating, a movie rating or some kind of rating on this, it wouldn't be like R or mature adult audiences only. It would be like NC-17 plus infinity or something like that because there's nothing left out of the story. It has both good and it has, what, bad. It has evil. It has love and... And faithfulness, and then it has infidelity. It has um, everything from genocide, violence, war, rage, anger, jealousy, to hope. Everything is in the story. And last week, Tim did a great job talking about this God who creates. The origins, the beginnings of our lives start with this true understanding that humanity is made in the image of God and has enormous capacity to reflect not just His creativity and His goodness, but also who He is as a being, that He's a relational God, that He's Father and He's Son and He's Spirit, and we to reflect that relationally even here in this community and in Portland and beyond And to look at that and to understand that as we embrace that, we also know that there's been brokenness. So Genesis 1 and 2 is like God creates this really incredible, if you will, creation world, his place where he'll dwell, and then brokenness enters in, sin enters in, and there's enormous dysfunction in the world thereafter. And so we have to talk about sin today, like why sin? You know, here's, here's partly why. Uh, one, because it, it makes us truly empathetic in the world. It really does. Meaning, if I don't ever talk about sin or understand it from an emotional and even intellectual kind of honesty and integrity, then I can't quite ever own what isn't working out in my life and in others. I can't really look at injustices in the world and and say, okay, well, that's not okay if I don't understand what it is that drives that, nor my part in what I should do to make that right for God and for the world. So we have to talk about sin. And I know some of my friends have said, John, what, you know, why does God even allow this sin? Well, part of that is not because he really wants it, but because the reality is that God is a loving God and a creator, and he gives us a choice, it's not like the, he doesn't want a bunch of scarecrows from the Wizard of Oz looking for their brains, right? You know, he really does want people to make decisions for themselves, and ultimately those things within the lanes that God has given them to live by. But he doesn't want it, and I know that because at the pinnacle part of creation, the creation account, it says this in Genesis two, verse twenty-five. This is right after he's, he's made humanity in his image. He says this, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They are completely whole. There's absolutely no shame. Relationally, they are safe. They are, there's enormous rest. Right There's an incredible rest that's happening, this peace that's happening between God and with one another. That is a perfect world. And I can't fully understand that, because I don't live in a perfect world. You can ask my wife if my home is a perfect world. It is not. I'm a ranting Asian dad, right, who who demands things. It's not a perfect world in my home, and I know that. And then we think, even outside of our homes and in the world, there's a reality to that as well. Yet. That's where we find ourselves. And so we know sin has entered into the world. We know brokenness has entered into the world. And because of that, today we want to look and understand why is there turmoil? Why is there struggle? Well, we have to understand how it came into the world, this brokenness, this sin. And as we do that, we want to look at the consequences and some of the ripple effects of it. And then we want to understand what God's solution is for it. What's God's answer to that? He doesn't want it. He never did desired it, but it's in the world. And so what is God's ultimate answer for that? So that's how we're going to look at it today. And so we're going to go right through Genesis 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, and understand I'm, I'm not, at this point, able to cover everything in Genesis 3, but we will do what we can to try to understand this issue of brokenness and how it affects everything. Chapter 3, verse 1. The story starts this way. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the word crafty here actually in the Hebrew means intelligent. So this serpent is in many ways an archetype. He's actually quite full of wisdom and understanding. That's something that must be understood. While I know we have images of someone slithering, the reality is this is clearly someone who can talk and communicate to Eve. The woman said to the serpent, oh, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat f- fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So there are consequences to this. Eve, Adam, they're fully aware of this. Verse 4 says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I don't know what Adam was doing. He was like, oh, what is that? Okay. But you see early on the deception that's happening here. Right? The serpent is saying what? That fruit is wrong? No. That wisdom is wrong? No. But actually the deception comes at attacking God's character. Because the underlining assumption or the lie here, the subtle twist of who God is, is that he's what? He's not good. That he's withholding something from you. That he's denying this wisdom, this good. They were already like God, but God wouldn't have given them all the good that they could experience. That's the irony here. They had all the good they could experience. They hadn't experienced evil, though. And that's all they got. And so you begin to see some of the deception and the separation and the mistrust that births actual belief in a lie that says that God He's not good, that he's not interested in your well-being. And that lie is the lie that we all struggle with. That perception that God does not want things for me. And I I can imagine in this space, you're probably disappointed we didn't get any snow, so, but if you go a little deeper, there's some things that you wish. God would have done. Or maybe in this space right now, you're saying, how come God didn't come through in this area of my life? Or there were things that you wish should have, could have happened, should have happened, but didn't. A relationship, a job, a career, whatever it is that it, you thought was going to be a part of your life didn't happen, and so now you're starting to question, is God really loving and good? And soon when you start to believe that God is not interested in your future, your well-being, you start to take matters in your own hands. And like Adam or Eve, you start to separate and choose to do things and define things the way you want to define them, even if those things are outside of what God wants for you and for the world. This week marks the anniversary, the death anniversary, the passing of my mom. Uh, she passed away many years ago, um, it was very hard, actually, even now, after many years, I have a difficult time talking about it, but there aren't many days I don't think about her, I can honestly say this, the sting is a little, little bit less, but there are many moments where I wonder, gosh, what would have it have been like to have her here at a really bad Super Bowl, it's the worst Super Bowl ever. I mean, it's three to zero, and I've eaten all my food because there's nothing else to do. I wonder what it would have been like for her to actually be with my kids. That is really hard for me. I think about that often. I think she would have loved my daughter, she would have she accepted my sons, but she would have loved my daughter. Because all they do is toot and make fun of how loud their toots are. And Lillian, however, she's just this courageous, brave young lady kind of thing. But there are moments, small, tiny moments, where I wonder, God, why is it like this? And early on, where I recognized she didn't see most of my, I can honestly say the better better, better parts of my life, I had to have a community around me that said, look, God is still your God. God is still loving. God still wants more for your life and for your family. So don't, don't cut away. Don't separate. Don't let mistrust create this chasm between you and God. And it took me not days, weeks. It took me years to come to that place. And in fact, I didn't plant Missio until I could actually get over that. Because I knew it would really, really start to reflect my capacity to do more. How about, how about us? Are there moments where we still start to question whether God is good and loving? Well, the results, right, the consequences of some of these things really come out here, and it really comes out, I think, in, 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 the, in a death. Remember, Eve says to the serpent, look, God did say, if I eat this, I'm going to what? I'm going to die. Now, here's the thing. They don't know what death is. No one's died yet. So it's kind of mysterious anyway. But they know there's an end to something. And so what's that end? Physically, you know the story. We're the beneficiaries of how things end. So we know that they don't actually physically die yet. So what is the death? I think it's a precursor to a lot of things, but it's, it's a spiritual one. It's, a, it's an identity death. Look, look at what happens here in verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of them... Oh, sorry. Is that where I'm at? Yes. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Right, that same word naked, right, and you're all kind of giggling, so just get it over with. The word naked, same word in Genesis 2, verse 25. Same word in the Hebrew. Every, in every instance, it's the same word, except that was attached in Genesis 2, verse 25 to what? The word unashamed. And now it's attached to two words, hiding and covering. What are they experiencing? In the presence of God, they're hiding themselves. They don't feel safe anymore. They see the sense in which they've not met a standard. And when exposed, and when you feel that you don't meet that gap, that's what we call, in that moment, where you feel inadequate and not enough, that's what we call shame. Not guilt. Shame. Those are different right? So in that moment, they're hiding. Their, their death is an innocence. Their death is a, is a spiritual one. It's a disconnect. It's a, it's a darkness. It's a void. It's, it's this idea that now their identities aren't ever the same again, where they just don't feel safe and can go to God, where that shalom and that peace and that rest in Genesis 1 and 2 was established. It's all broken that's what happens. And even more unique and maybe interesting to me uh, was that they were hiding and covering themselves and hiding in trees. The very things that God was giving them to thrive and to live and to be creative with, they were hiding behind. And I think to this day, we still do this. We still do this. We hide behind the stuff that God gives us. We hide behind the careers that God gives us, the accolades, the awards, the acronyms behind our names, the things that we think will, will take, you know, kind of make us feel shielded from things that aren't going well in our lives. But you know what? If I could achieve more, if I could do more, if I could accomplish more, if I could look the part in the world, if I, if I could hear, gosh, you're so great. Even good works and even great things that we can do for our city, and please keep doing them, we could hide behind for years, thinking we've dealt with our internal realities and our brokenness and our shame, all the way up to the point that God comes in, in the cool of our day. Maybe in that quietness in our home. Maybe it's sometimes at church. Or maybe it's within your family, in that space that you go to where nobody can find you. And suddenly, you start to pray or open up your scriptures or whatever it is that you do from a religious, spiritual point. and, And suddenly, you're starting to feel separated and it doesn't feel right and, and you kind of know it. This is what is happening. This is the result. These are the consequences. And it's all because now they're starting to separate themselves. I, I, I was just telling a friend who doesn't believe in God that he, he, he said to me, like, John, you know what? Here's the deal. Like, I function just fine without God. And I said, man, You do. You are successful in every way. You are incredible in your company. You are well-known in Oregon and beyond. And I don't for one minute doubt that. And I said, but you are only scratching the surface of your capacity. Only a morsel, just a tiny kernel of what could completely blow up. You could totally do so much. You are only experiencing a part of what God intended for you, the reflection of who you are because what? Because you are filled with him. So yes, we can be functional, even in our dysfunction, separate from God, but gosh, could we be what God really wants us to experience and become? No. I have Christmas lights still up on my house. Anybody else? Gee, you liars. Oh, what? Thank you! Thank you, thank you. I sometimes feel really, I have shame in that moment, you know? Uh, But I actually like the Christmas lights more after Christmas. I know that's kind of weird, but it's true. Like, they almost don't have their glow and glitz during Christmas, and I think we all understand that, you know, maybe it's the consumerism of Christmas. I don't know what it is, but maybe it's because everybody else has a way better Christmas lights than me. Either way, I love looking at them. And during a very boring Super Bowl, I had mine on. And I was staring at them because there was nothing else to do during the Super Bowl. And I was staring at them, and I'm thinking, gosh, these lights are gorgeous in the dark, right? They're on my deck. They look great. It dawned on me that these bulbs that I've had up for months only run and only work, and they're only functional when I turn them on. And they're only capable of being light bulbs unless they are run on electricity. Until I plug them in. They can have a shell that can look a certain way. They can even emanate some kind of glow with some kind of light on the outside, but on the inside, it cannot function properly. It will not have the same capacity. And yet, I think to myself, gosh, I think we are built the same way. God creates us. He creates us for a purpose. He's designed you, every single one of us, for something so beautiful. And yet, trying to run on anything else than him would short." change all of it. It would just completely be a truncated shadow, a shape of what could really be in our lives. So Adam and Eve, they discovered this dysfunction and they discovered how they're separate and they realized they can't quite function the way they used to. And this comes out in Adam and Eve's even relationship, the vertical and the horizontal one, In the form of blaming. The story goes on this way. After he says, hey, I was hiding. I'm in the trees. Verse 11 says, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I I laugh at Adam. I know at his expense, but I can't help it. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Blame, blaming, blaming, hiding, hiding, hiding. All products of shame. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And then the woman says, well, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. Nothing but blame. You want to know the product of shame? It's blaming. Constant deflection of what I need to own because of something that, I didn't do that I said I would, right? Like, that's kind of it. It's, it's a constant deflection. When, you, when you're in a moment in a heated battle between someone and all you're doing is blaming the other, you know what, at that moment, it's just pride saying, you know what, I'm, I'm perfect and you're not. I meet a standard, you don't. And if, and if I don't, it's because of your, your, it's your fault, right? That's what really is happening here. But Adam is so unique in this scenario because really he's not just blaming Eve. He's actually blaming God when you think about it. Well, I was fired. I was kind of in my man cave. I was doing my thing. You said, "Hey, name some animals," and so I started naming some animals. And I was eating. And it was pretty. It was pretty good. And then you were like, "It's not good for you to be alone. So I should give you somebody." I was like, "Okay, well, maybe I don't know. I, I'm pretty good right now. No, no. I, I think you need a better half. Actually, at least an equal half." Oh, okay. And then he's like, "What bone in my bone? Well, wow, this is flesh of my flesh." And now it's like, well, you know, I don't know. God, you put her here. Right. I didn't put her. You put her here. I was fine. And, you know, whatever kind of kind of thing I had with you, you know, it's 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 no big deal. I really seriously. Right. That's what's going on here. So functionally speaking, it doesn't work relationally. And I think you see the rippling effects of human decisions and actions. And they come out even more in the curse here from verses 14 through 19. And I'm just going to go right through these. It says here, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel so there's going to be this enormous spiritual battle that's going to happen. There's going to be, out of this reality, at the center of this battle is you and me. And out of this will be this new Adam, this offspring of Eve. And that new Adam, again, because we know how this story ends, is in fact Christ. It's Jesus. Who will defeat temptation in a wilderness later when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, Right? And will defeat sin in that way, temptation in every way, and will defeat death on a cross. So you begin to see, gosh, there are these really incredible morsels of of hope happening here. But until Christ returns, we are in this battle. And there is no way except through Christ to overcome that. In verse 16, it says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Moms in the room understand this really well. Dads cannot. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I find this terribly interesting in the sense of, in this way, that it says here that women will desire love and will put relationships above, I think, everything else. Even even at their own expense. They will idolize the relationship, even if it's not working. And what you don't hear often on the telling of that is that men will dominate women in that space. That there is this mutual, almost crazy idolizing that goes on in relationships. And the neglect that sometimes men have. It's pretty clear. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and thus you will return, right? This idea that now the ground is not going to work quite right for humanity, that they will work and work and work it and work it and and think that they're going to produce one more thing, that one more thing is going to actually come about. It's almost like trying to get that extra contract, trying to get that one hour more hour in, trying to get that one thing just right, but it just will never quite produce what it is that you wanted to do, like a Painter who can envision a perfect picture but can't quite get it there. There's a kind of an addiction, if you will, to work. So you see these rippling effects, right? Every decision is in every way a human one that affects everything else. So the underlying question becomes well, what's the solution? What does what, what God? want, then, out of this? You know, if it's me, I mean, I think I just start, just like, Adam and Eve, it's done. Like, I would rather just have a new Adam and Eve and start right there. That's me. And thank goodness, I'm not God. Right? But that's how I would probably do it. I can honestly say, I would say, like, gosh, you know, this didn't work out. Let's just let's reprogram it. Let's fix it. I would literally just do it all over again. But that's not how God does it. Even in the curse, you realize that Adam Eve are not actually cursed. They aren't literally the ones that God curses. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed. You can see that there are these things called seeds of grace. And they're growing. God's not quite done yet, right? He's not quite through yet. He's not tra- He He wants his creation to be full and whole. He wants to what? He wants to restore it. And it comes out even more here in verses 20 through 24. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. There's this sense in which there's a generation, there's more to come. 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He clothed them. Those coverings, those things that they tried to make, I don't know what they were, but they certainly weren't enough. They certainly didn't feel safe, so God said, look, this is inadequate. In of yourself, you cannot, you cannot... Find wholeness without me. I will give you and I will clothe you and I will make you whole so that you can, even in the midst of this orange thread of brokenness, you can still what? You can still feel safe. You can still thrive. And it comes out even more in this banishment of them from the tree of life. And the Lord God said, verse 22, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever immortality. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Why is God taking them out? Why is he saying don't eat of the tree of life? Because he doesn't want them to live forever in this state of shame and condemnation. He doesn't want them to be in this state of evil, in this constant dark. He doesn't want that anymore. So he, he, he takes them out of the garden. He says, look, I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. Right? God's restoring things. And ultimately, this restoration can't happen until what? Tell Jesus. And that goes back to Genesis 3, verse 15, Right? that there's going to be this new Adam. Because Adam does what on the cross? The new Adam. Jesus does what? He dies. He takes all the condemnation, all the punishment for all the wrath of our brokenness. And he says, I defeat for once and for all, all of that. So that when Paul says later in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we are truly children of God, it is what? True. And God is what? Good. And that becomes really the tremendous point here, that in our broken state, God is restoring us through grace fully realized in the person and work in the life of Jesus. And if this is true, there are two things I just want to say that we as a community, Mosaic, we need to really be vigilant on. Here's the first. We need to know that we're invited to turn to Jesus and to step into his wisdom. Right? John 1 says that the word became flesh, that all of God and who he is is here for us. That we should embrace fully who Jesus is in the kingdom and pursue the kingdom because the kingdom is in every way the garden. And then when we do that, we experience what? His grace. There's no condemnation. There's no, now, now we step into it. So we should be vigilant in stepping into this even more so with Jesus than ever before because we can, because of grace. And if true, we should also know that we can approach God and his presence with absolute confidence, owning all our actions, right? There's this sense of which shame is eliminated. We can actually be in a place. I was thinking about these care teams. Gosh, you know, if you could be in a care team and go, this is messy, this is jacked, this is broken. I'm being careful with my language right now, right? You know what I'm trying to say. This does not work for me. And you could be honest, and you could be broken, and you could talk about all the things that you think should be, and you could even, if you need to, say, I am absolutely disappointed in life, and go, okay, all right. There is no shame here. You are deeply loved by God. We can do this. Because we have a God who says, this is what we can have and do. This is how we get through our suffering and our guilt and our, 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 our pain and, and, and the hurt that goes on. And so we should know that we can approach God with 100% confidence. Can you imagine a community doing that? Oof. Taking fractured lives and bringing them together. It would be... A colossal thing, It'd be like a, a mosaic, an authentic community that follows Jesus for the world. I' invite the band to come forward. We're going to take communion. And at this table. It represents, at this table, it represents your moment to be absolutely and utterly still. And when you take the bread and you dip it in the bowl and the juice, the, body, the bread representing the body that was broken for you, the the, blood, uh, the the juice representing the blood that was shed for the remissions of and the forgiveness of all sins, that he who knew no sin became our sin, became our brokenness, so that we could come and approach God with absolute confidence that when you take that and you eat that, you are declaring until he comes back for us that what? That you and I, we trust him, that he is indeed God, that he is still good no matter what our circumstances are. And in that space, do not be surprised in in that moment that God asks you, hey, where are you? And you can say, her confidence. I am right.